0: You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
1: This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Sarah Diemer of Waterford, Pennsylvania. Sarah will receive a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at Podcast.com.
2: I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Laura Bricker, and these are their stories.
3: Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast
2: about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either criminal intent, SVU, or original recipe. And Today, we're looking at Law & Order, Season 11, Episode 2, Turnstile Justice.
0: You say the one and only person responsible for Steph getting killed is this lunatic. You put a line through it on your list, and then you pat yourselves on the back.
3: Mr. Donatelli, I understand you're upset, but this isn't the
0: time or the place to address these things. Tell me what is the time and place, and I'll be
2: there. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Mom and Dad Are Fighting from Slate, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca.
3: Kevin, I've got my HMO card, and I'm reporting for duty.
2: All right. Rounding out our panel is our special guest, Also from the Crime Writers (laughs) On podcast.
1: (laughs) Digging deep this week.
2: It's Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara.
1: Good day, Kevin.
2: Uh, So, Lara, how did you get into podcasting?
1: How did I get into podcasting? I think that you, Kevin, may have um, emailed me and said, "Um, hey, uh, do you want to do a podcast? And I'm like, what's that? Um, (laughs) And after
2: I Googled podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: said, sure, I'll give it a try. Um, And that was actually four years ago now, um, which is crazy to me that we have uh, been doing our Crime Writers on podcast for four years. It is crazy. Yeah. It really is.
2: (laughs) I don't want to get Oprah on the couch right now, but I've never asked you. Do you enjoy doing this?
1: (laughs) Well, Kevin, it has changed my life. Yes.
2: (laughs) Now, Laura, you're, you've become famous for your rage walks. I have. Explain how that came about for us.
1: Um, well, I have to say, and I might be rage walking after this episode that we're talking about today. So, um, you know, I have a background in criminal justice. I worked as a defense investigator uh, for the public defender system for a number of years. And um, I have a little bit of a trigger when it comes to injustices and people being taken advantage of. And um, No. No kidding. No shit. So my new <laughs> outlet is um, walking. and. And I have a new place. Uh, the local YMCA actually has a one of those speed punching bags in the corner of their track. So if I really oh. get enraged, I can just the pummel thing that on that. It looks like one
2: testicle hanging.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So you know, when I get like super, super enraged, I can just take a little break, get my rage out, and start walking again. It's been a very good outlet for me. Hmm.
2: Now I know you're a big fan of British crime dramas of all stripes. Uh, you've uh, enjoyed the Scandinavian crime dramas. How is your relationship with Law & Order, the quintessential American crime drama?
1: Um, Well, it's actually kind of funny you should ask me this, Kevin, because I'm somebody who has always had this show sort of on in the background when I'm doing things in my house.
2: (laughs) Not just you. (laughs) And I just sort
1: of watch it. I don't really know who anybody is, but I, I somehow find myself strangely getting sucked into it whenever I turn on the TV and it always seems to be on. Um twenty four hours a day. Um so you know, I think I, I've moved on now. I'm definitely more in the British crime drama camp, but I do still love some law and order. Um it's it's sort of soothing to go back to that. Even though she knows she doesn't know who any of the characters are I or don't what know. their jobs are. But that's the no. thing is
2: you don't actually need to you know, know episode no. to episode. You're right. There's not a continuing yeah. <laughs> storyline. It's each episode is encapsulated. So yep. you just have to kind of remember people's names and getting to that. Laura... <laughs> favorite law and order detective team of all the franchises can you name Two detectives.
1: Or just tell us what they look like. (laughs) Well, I can't. So I looked at them because I'm going to tell you that um, my my favorite detective um, is Mariska Haggerty because I like her. (laughs) How do you say her name?
2: Hargitay. Mariska Hargitay. (laughs) Okay,
1: let me say. Whatever her name is. You know what? I'm going to say it's the lady with the hairstyle that I always want and that will never work on my hair because my hair is too curvy and wavy. And I'm like, I really like her hair. Wait a minute. Um, She's
2: been at 20 seasons and and has had 19 different hairstyles. (laughs) Which
1: one? So, which I like one? the short hair. I like the short hairstyle. Um, yep. and she has that up hot up partner, um, who I think was also in something else we recently watched. <laughs> was he in like the night of or something? <laughs> anyway, he's super good looking. So, yes, <laughs> Mariska Haggerty, I'm sure he's very thrilled to hear That's that. She's <laughs> yeah, love
2: yeah.
1: it. <laughs> Whatever her name is, the <laughs> hair chick.
2: Laura, who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite line order district attorney prosecutorial
1: team. Oh, dear God. Um, I'm going to go with Sam Waterston from this episode um, because, again, uh, you know, I know who he is. And he happens to be um, my neighbor across the street. His daughter is like her childhood best friend. So I feel a little bit invested, I know, in watching him and um, his attractive little counterpart in this week's episode. Yep. Angie Harmon, a.k.a. Abby Carmichael. Carmichael sounds very official.
3: Who is my favorite. She's actually my favorite co-prosecutor along with Jack McCoy.
2: That's great. Well, we don't want Laura's bad pick getting back to her neighbor.
1: It's true. Because it might get all the <laughs> way
2: back to Sam <laughs> Watterson if it's wrong.
1: Oh, that's good. No, no, no. We've talked about it. She's, she said she'll let me know if he's ever in town. I'm like, All right. And you, then I'll <laughs> let us Rebecca know. know as well. Yes,
2: <laughs> we'll be down with a tape recorder in a minute. <laughs> All right, now let's look at the first half of this episode, Law and Order, season eleven, episode two, Turnstile Justice. Don't sleep in the subway, darling. Uh, oh, you're dead on a bench. My fault.
0: <laughs> let's call Briscoe and Green. No one's filed a report with missing person, fitting her description which could mean she was from out of town.
1: Oh, that's just
0: what we need. Female tourist beaten to death on the subway. Oh, she was dressed more like a businesswoman than a tourist. <laughs>
2: the unidentified woman's head was bashed in somehow. The detectives work backwards from the turnstile to the newsstand to the diner where she gets her coffee to the photoshop where she gets the photos of her children. And then there's a number six in the background of the apartment. So, what? What? <laughs> So they learn the woman is Stephanie Donatelli. Her distraught ex-husband says she always wore certain family heirlooms like a gold cross and a swatch. (laughs) (laughs) Winnie-a-boo. They catch a break when two women are spotted using the victim's American Express card. At a movie theater. Mm. They got the card from her boyfriend who bought it off a homeless guy who took all of Stephanie's valuables. He says some crazy black guy came up behind Stephanie and dropped a paving stone on her head, leaving only with her eyeglasses. Briscoe and Green ask a patrolman if they know any crazy black guy in the New York City subway system ever. <laughs> <laughs> they point him to Ryan Gallant's flophouse where the delusional man is arrested. Okay, so a woman dead on the uh, the bench at the subway station. Yep. These detectives are put
0: out.
3: Uh, these detectives are like.
2: DOA
0: on a subway platform. Maybe it's a person of great renown. Maybe they thought we didn't have anything else to do.
3: Why do they even call us? I'm like, because there's a dead person and you're homicide detectives? <laughs> like, what is the matter with you? And then they have, like, this, like, really weird, like, Briscoe quip there where uh, Green says something like, oh. Well dressed,
0: mail's done. She puts in an honest day's work and waits for the downtown local to go home. Yeah, she caught the express.
3: Looks like she caught the express. And I'm like, (laughs)
0: first of all,
3: (laughs) how did you know she was waiting for the local? That seems awfully specific for people who don't care about killings in the subway system. Oh, you know, it
2: just sets up the quip. (laughs) Come on. Go with it. So they learned their victim always had a cup of coffee. So where do they go? A diner across the street.
3: Another person I know gone. And this one had kids. How do you know that? Every other week she's in here with new pictures that she just picked up from next door.
2: And apparently that's where she gets her cup of coffee to go every day. It's the year 2000. (laughs) And she's going into a little greasy spoon to get a cup of coffee to go.
1: (laughs) You know, whatever works. I I found what I found more suspicious about that scene was like, why is she showing these diner people pictures of her kids all the time? Like, they don't fucking care. Like, what are you like inviting pedophiles to come find your kids? I'm like, what? What is this? That seems very odd to me. Very this, suspect.
3: This, all of this backwards investigation stuff. I mean, this is all pre iPhone. This 2000. When the yeah. iPhone came out, what in 2007? Yeah. So. It's also, they didn't really
2: start spying on it until 2009. Right, so. and it's also like
3: pre-Starbucks and pre- No, it's not pre-Starbucks. It's
1: pre-Starbucks in New York. No, it's not pre-Starbucks Starbucks it in New York. It's pre them being ubiquitous. No! no. <laughs> There's
0: got
1: to be a coffee shop, no. like a cart on the street or something. Listen, New Yorkers like a, love their diners. A, you really have to hate
2: your coffee. <laughs> If you're like, I'm going to go and get it there.
3: Because there's a million places to get coffee. Those people seem very nice. What are you talking
2: about?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Plus, she also was using film film, which is so adorable.
2: Well, you don't know that. I mean, she just didn't have a color printer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they so they do go to this <clears throat> photo mat, right? And the guy there says he doesn't know who she is or he does or something like that. So they ask you know, trying to get a clue. So what do you do with the photos that aren't picked up right away? And, of course, he just thumbs through some some The some seven envelope,
3: envelopes of photos. Pulls been it out, and
2: they're right there. But wait a minute. They make it sound like she's been dead for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, it seems like it was happening the same day. It's like, well, she hasn't picked up her photo. She, let's throw it in the dead person pile. <laughs>
3: Yeah, he didn't know her
1: name. He didn't know what she looked like, but he was able to pull out the envelope immediately. Yeah, yeah. There were suspiciously few envelopes in that box as well. (laughs) Oh no, since she was taking a lot of photos, according to those people in the coffee shop, because it sounded like she had new photos like every other day. Yeah, but I was like Photoshop. Like, who remembers these? Like,
0: wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like like when you see
1: those like the kids, like, you know, see like a Walkman and they're like, what's that? Like, I mean, and it doesn't seem like this episode should be that long ago. But, it, you know, it was. It, it's amazing to think that in, in just that amount of time, we're not even using Photoshops anymore like that. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, Kay,
3: uh, Kevin, let's just go out the front porch of our own house and take a photo of our ourselves. Our own crappy,
2: <laughs> graffiti-ridden house. And so you can see, oh, there's a number six behind her head that That's narrows framer. it down. It's a framer. <laughs> well, we see two people before they are famous. Um, who is playing the role of Paul Donatelli?
1: He's the voice of the penguins of Madagascar. <laughs> that's how you recognize him. Oh my God! Him? I get Laura. Wait, a minute. wait, a minute, wait. A minute. Is that re-
3: <laughs> That's really how what you know him from? Really? No, I don't. I,
1: I actually looked him up because I knew you were gonna ask me this and I was like, Who is this guy? He's gotta be somebody. Um so that's one of his big roles. Mm-hmm. But the husband No, it's not the husband you're talking the about? The husband? Yeah. The that's, yeah. Yeah, that's not his big role, Laura. He was in Modern Family? Yeah. In Modern Family
2: the, for ten years. The, the, the Emmy most... Award winner. <laughs> Ty, Ty Burrell. Burrell, the
3: most successful sitcom actor arguably <laughs> since the year 2000. i On the most successful sitcom TV show of the century. But yeah, he's.
2: But you also recognize that uh, that old detective as the candlestick from Beauty and the Beast, too, yeah, right? Uh, yes,
1: yes, yes, I did. Yep.
0: This last month or so, she's called me up on the phone at night, and we've talked and talked, and she's told me how lonely she is.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: Oh,
2: so <laughs> before we move on from Ty Burrell, now on Modern Family, um, uh, when they tell him his ex-wife is dead. Yep. He starts this awkward sweeping. That's like right. He's... <laughs> and... he, yeah.
3: he, like he's right. He he continues the grand tradition of doing other things when the uh, murder cops on Law and Order come and tell you that somebody that you love is dead. He continues making the peanut butter and chili sandwich. He starts sweeping the floor. He has a lot of dust all of a sudden that needs to be tended to. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it his it's so funny because... You talk about the Ty Burrell thing. It's Mm -hmm. it's funny that Lara remembers him from this obscure voiceover role that he did. But Mm -hmm. as soon as they rang the doorbell in his apartment, you hear his voice. You know it's him.
0: Is this the home of Stephanie Donatelli? It's the home of her children and her ex-husband. Why? His
3: voice really is so distinctive. And his hair in this episode is incredible compared to what it
0: is now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because when he does his very sad, I'm trying to not cry because my ex-wife is dead voice. It's essentially the same voice that he does when he's all wound up as Phil Dunphy. <laughs> right? It's <Yeah>. a...
3: <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Totally. And, yeah.
2: And I will say that when I die, I do not want to be identified by my swatch. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: I'll remember yeah. that, Kevin.
3: I, I do have one quibble with one plot point in this yeah. episode. I mean, one. I, I'm okay. just going to start with this one. So there's this whole conceit that his wife had come out as a lesbian and they were divorced, but they were still good friends and they were uh-huh. co-parents. Why? Like the fact that she's a lesbian is completely irrelevant in the rest of this episode. The fact that they're divorced is completely irrelevant. Yeah, He's so still fighting for justice as
1: if they were still married. I think
2: they're just throwing a red herring It in. was
1: very weird. That was weird. Because they, they framed it weird, too. Like, her private affairs or her private matters... And what? Oh, you mean because she was like gay, and I'm like, what? It just the segue there was very, very odd. But he was still. I was. This is when I was like, okay, boohoo, broom guy. Like, I mean, the boohooing was driving me nuts here. Um. (laughs)
2: Well, they 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 are able to deduce that she's gay because she picks up a copy of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and And the the Advocate. advocate. (laughs) Oh, she picks up the Gay Advocate. She must be gay. Look, she picked up the Wall Street Journal. She wasn't a stockbroker. She wasn't a man. Now, we also have somebody else who's famous. Uh, patrolman number two. <laughs> Laura, do you recognize patrolman number two? Nope. Give me
3: a clue, Kevin.
2: Oh, okay. He's on Brooklyn 9 9. Mm,
3: that's what I knew him from. That's right. He's a hey, it's that guy for show. Sure. What's his name?
2: It's Joe Latruglio. Mm-hmm. All right, lady. Calm down. Show us what you're talking about. And uh, he plays Charles on that uh, that sitcom, he's got a very distinctive voice. And, uh, yeah, and a baby face. Yep. Um, so, yeah, he was a surprise. We do also have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Laura, can you recognize the actor who played attorney Axtell?
1: Um, is, that, is that the defense attorney? Yeah. Was he recently in Jack Ryan?
2: I think he may have been.
1: Ah. Um, yeah, And the O.A., the creepy O.A. on Netflix. Mm. Uh-huh, I don't yeah. know who he is, but uh, uh, he's an angry looking individual. Um, I'll, I'll give him that. I, like, I did want to smack him. I did have some rage when he came on. I was like, ah! Um, so, yeah. What What else, Kevin?
2: I hope, yeah, that's Jack. Oh,
1: Guiding Light.
2: Yeah, he was on the Guiding Light.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Jack Gilpin.
0: Jack Gilpin Don't let the political ambitions of a district attorney pervert this court of law.
2: He's made seven appearances in the franchise, five of them on Law & Order as this lawyer. Right. This he's recurring great as a lawyer. Yes, but he's only known as Mr. Axtell. That's right. They <laughs> never gave him a first name.
3: And in real life, he has a famous daughter.
2: Yeah, who's his famous daughter? His famous
3: daughter is Betty Gilpin, who was in GLOW... Uh, the blonde, beautiful wrestler yes. who's also in Masters oh. of Sex. She's oh my a great God. actress and that is his daughter in real life.
2: Yeah, so I guess the the talent runs in the family. I don't see him doing any wrestling moves in this. Though. That's
3: right. And with, But the difference between like him and his daughter is I actually know her name. Like She sort of transcended that, hey, it's that guy status in a way that I, I think he is such a classic character actor. Like, you could put him in any situation. He looks like he could be yeah. part of a fake president's fake cabinet. He looks like he could be a lawyer. <laughs> he looks like he could be Rory Gilmore's uncle. Like,
1: <laughs> Well, that's why he started as a soap actor. I mean, I feel like soap soap stars kind of can fill that role. And the hair. The hair was very—it almost didn't look real in this episode <laughs> <Yeah>. to me. <laughs> I
2: don't know how they come up sort of like with the uh, the characteristics of these recurring characters right. that come on. Um, he was on five times. You think they would have moved on and given him a first name? <laughs> But uh, but I think it was because the judge said it so well that it, it stuck. She went, Mr. Axtell. <laughs> okay, so the trail leads them to a stolen credit card. Mm. And they know the two girls are using it. Because they are at the movies. That's right. So Briscoe and Green decide they're going to go undercover.
3: <laughs> Briscoe's is just standing casually in the lobby with a giant bag of popcorn to blend in in his trench coat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I thought this was a great scene, great scene. In part because I mean, these two characters, you know, they're pulling each other's hair. They're a, they're a funny duo. Uh, but they do go in, they buy some hoe clothes. Uh, (laughs) so there's a first purchase and then he said, let's wear this, this shitty stuff and let's go watch while you were sleeping.
3: (laughs) Laura, you're, you're a private detective. I mean, you have been, you've played that role in in very many iterations in your life. Have you ever done any kind of work where you've had to sort of like stand around and be undercover just so you can see somebody doing some normal thing like going to the movies?
1: (laughs) Um, sadly not. It's not as exciting. Um, I wasn't like following around cheating spouses or anything, Uh, but I I mean, I have had to like sit outside of, you know, kind of sketchy apartment buildings waiting for people to come and go um, and and try not to appear obvious. How do you Um, do that? Well, I I, kind of stand out, you know. I I have a hard time being um, not obvious because I'm like, what's going on here? (laughs) Hmm, What are these people doing? Let me pull out my
3: binoculars. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. I get my listening ear thing on so I can hear a mile down the street. Um, I got it for
2: you. This is what you should be doing. You should be smoking a cigarette.
1: Oh. Because people standing
2: outside smoking... Are just like they're oh they're doing something we don't think anything of it
3: you're just standing there with your hands in your pockets with your earpiece in yeah unless you're yeah. a
2: hooker people are just, you know people are just going to be like you know this person stands out like a sore thumb even if she does have a box of movie popcorn
1: pretty much pretty much I would stand out if I tried to smoke a cigarette I just would not look natural doing that so I think that would be even worse
2: <laughs> well you could just like flick it flick yeah. the ash it's in there That's and, it. yeah.
3: Uh, there's another character in this episode that I really thought Laura might enjoy. Okay.
1: Um. And I think, I, I think you and I are thinking of the same one okay. because I'm just
2: about to talk about the homeless shelter.
1: Oh, yes. I have an exclamation on this one. Yeah.
2: So they go looking for uh, the homeless guy named Rafi, and they go to the shelter where he's supposed to be at, and they're met by a man who says he's in charge.
0: Uh, he's under me. I'm the chief administrator here. Oh, uh, We're looking for a certain guest of this establishment, uh, Rafi something? Rafi Lorraine? How many rappers you got? Ten beds back on the left.
2: And he's walking around in his underwear with a beard made out of shaving cream, holding a cat in his arms. What the fuck?
1: Yeah, that was exactly my reaction. I'm like, wait, what? Why is this guy carrying a cat around? Why is there a cat in the homeless shelter? Why is he totally unconcerned that he's walking around with shaving cream on his face when these people show up?
2: You thought about why is there a cat in the homeless shelter?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is the cat homeless? But homeless (laughs) cats are typically not that friendly. I'm just saying. Does the cat need a shave? (laughs) I I don't know. I was just like, where did this cat come from? And and I wanted more information on the cat. That's just me, personally.
2: I just sometimes, like, they they go to a support home or they go to a homeless shelter and they have to have some sort of oddball... Character that they run into
3: somebody who would take that super shitty job.
2: Well, yeah, no, but they like run into a patient or a homeless person, and so they, you know, they 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 come up with some quirks or something, so you know that's who they are. This
1: person's off the grid. This person's marginalized. This, this is like maybe it was a therapy cat. I
2: don't know. No, this one was like un like unbelievable. Like I've never seen one like this. No,
3: I've never seen one like this. Like they made a point of making him just look insane. Yeah. for no reason. Like he's supposed
1: to be in charge, though, right? Well,
3: that's what yeah. he said.
1: <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been in a lot of those places in my in my private detective world. And you, usually it's some old, like I had one guy. It was like he was this old, like angry, you know, veteran guy in the back room, chain smoking cigarettes who, you know, it was it was a little sketchy, but there was no cats there. Um, So cigarettes and, and like alcohol would have been more true to character i think
3: there is sort of like that gatekeeper part in a lot of these episodes of law and order so this guy was like the gatekeeper who runs the homeless shelter very often the gatekeeper is the guy sitting inside I- the cage at a pawn shop or one of those cd motels or a parking garage you know that person who just isn't helpful? I don't helpful. think he
2: actually was running the homeless shelter, Rebecca. <laughs> I think he thought he was. You think he
3: was Gary Busey in the situation? He totally was.
2: <laughs> and you know that that shaving cream beard? That was freshly applied. Yes it was. Cuz if he if it, 10 minutes later it would have been all like sort Gone. of yeah, yeah, yeah been melting down and it's it's a good thing that it wasn't like oh you've interrupted me mid shave.
3: He was more helpful than the MetroCard guy though, who actually was supposed to be helping them. The guy with a uniform on sitting in the booth who was just like, "Sorry, nope, nope, no." And this guy was way more helpful.
2: Yeah, so so I, by comparison, yes, and and much more helpful than the guy at the photomat.
1: Exactly, yeah. Which, who charged <laughs> them? Who, who charged them two dollars <laughs> or whatever it was? I should pay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's take a look at the
2: second half of this episode. Ryan Gallant's lawyer says his client is clearly insane, but McCoy isn't buying it. He says Gallant has been certified competent when he's taking his meds.
0: Tell me he's not insane, Jack. I'll tell you, you're not getting him off based on that. He stole property and ran. And flight's the one indicator juries love to rely on when they reject an insanity defense. So it doesn't matter whether or not he's insane. What matters most is he doesn't get to do this again.
2: They cut a deal. Gallant pleads guilty, easy peasy. But Phil Dunphy's not happy, and that's <laughs> that it's wrapped up so neatly. Sure, Gallant is responsible, but who's responsible for turning him loose on the public? Because they just can't let shit go. <laughs> McCoy and Carmichael look into Gallant's medical care. He just got out of Rikers with no medication and never was referred to treatment while in jail. Seems like there's this thing called an HMO that's running things now, and they're trying to save money by not providing care. Communist DA Nora Lewin decides (laughs) the HMO executive, Philip Andrews, should be tried for manslaughter for not treating Gallant, who later killed Stephanie. The defense argues the executive is just doing his job. Fucking people. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, saving the prison money on medical expenses. But McCoy says Gallant's violence was a foreseeable event. Mm. The jury convicts Andrews on a lesser charge, and he gets a year in jail. All right, uh, I, Rebecca, I know I, you want to say something about Abby Carmichael's wardrobe. Go ahead. I won't edit it out.
3: Okay, her clothes in this
2: episode. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Now tell me what you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you think about uh, her character in this episode.
3: I think she's an uncharacteristically. Because you love yourself some Carmichael, I do. I love her because she, you know, she's a. Um hard-charging D.A. with a sometimes soft spot underneath that, and she pushes back a lot on Jack's evil deeds when he tries to cross the line. But she, in this episode, is also incredibly kind and empathetic when she's in the room with that incredibly scary, psychotic guy who they know hit somebody, and he comes charging at her. I
0: understand there's some problem with you letting us fingerprint you, sir. He does that every so often.
3: She just stays
1: like real cool under pressure, and kind of in a way that is. Kind her of eyes nice. just
2: open really wide.
3: Yeah, she
1: doesn't flinch at all, Lara. I was impressed. I thought she was a goner. I was like, oh, here we go. I mean, this guy, <laughs> uh, this is it. This is she's she's done. Her and her pretty outfit, but um, uh,
2: DA red shirt.
1: Yeah, no, I was. Uh, that was that was an impressive scene because um, I thought for sure that that guy was going to like lose it, and like one of his other personalities was going to end up killing her. This this
3: episode was a little bit like a 2018 podcast. Like this episode, like this season of Serial, <laughs> where it sort of took the thing that happened on the surface and dug down to the causes and sort of tried to expose that very uncharacteristic for law and order very uncharacteristic i think for a real life da team to put away yeah. a, a killer and then be like now let's spend more time looking into the deeper cause and let's send the cops to <laughs> to interview some executives like yeah it's not characteristic of of what probably would happen and definitely uncharacteristic for this Usually, hard charging prosecutorial team.
2: Right. Now, we haven't talked in the podcast yet at all about new district attorney Nora Lewin.
3: Kami <laughs> Pinko, Nora Lewin? Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: remember, this is just her second episode. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and she'll be on for two years, yep. Diane Wiest's character. She's the appointed replacement of Adam Schiff, mm-hmm. who, you know, we all know is, you know, the longtime. <gasps> <laughs> <Very descriptive. laughs> DNA, DA. Uh, this has always been a political office, the DA's office. Right. But this is probably the first time that in Law and Order we have a political character.
3: Right, because in the show, as you remember, she was appointed by allegedly by. Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Which is really funny to think about now how he'd point this like soft-hearted, footloose mom to be the DA in New York where he had formerly been a mafia prosecutor.
2: Oh yeah, Well, she was a mafia prosecutor too. That's the backstory. That's, That's how they knew That's each the other. But she's, also, she's a tough broad. She's also so. a
3: high-thinking law professor type, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Who
3: yeah. cares a lot about the system.
2: Yeah, and then Laura, she has this sort of soliloquy where she's talking about uh, the problems with HMOs and how they're big bad and evil and that yeah. Well, this could be a civil case, she wants to go for criminal charges.
3: If we go in there and start taking pot shots at HMOs, first of all, we're flying in the face of Pegram versus Herdrich. And then secondly, what if we prevail? I mean, what does that do to a healthcare system that depends on
1: HMOs to provide their treatment? Yeah, that's totally not realistic. But I liked it. I was I was like behind her. I was like, you go, girl. But um, I was like, that's never really going to actually happen. Um, All the
2: Bernie bros were going. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's right. Yes. Oh, my God. And then I was like, where do I know her from? Um, she's got a very kind face. But where, what, what was she in? Rebecca, Diane Weist. She's put in a million things, but yeah. yeah, she
3: was the mom of the mom of the preacher's daughter. At Footloose, oh, who okay, convinced right. her her hard ass preacher husband to let the kids dance. Dance.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There'll be no dancing in this town. <laughs> There'll be no
1: HMOs in this town dancing.
2: Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> There's this really good scene when they go to arrest the HMO executive. <laughs>
3: which is only uh, the scene only exists for one reason let's be real
2: yeah again for another quip he wants get your commanding officer on the phone i want to hear from him that i should be arrested on your feet pal your coverage doesn't provide for a second opinion it's funny because his insurance doesn't cover second opinions <laughs> either <laughs> <laughs> so at trial mccoy's argument is that they should have known that turning this guy loose is that he's going to reoffend.
3: was not the defendant well aware Not only of Mr. Gallant's propensities, but of the risk he constituted for every person he came in contact with. The answer is, of course he was aware of it. Of course, he chose to ignore it. Of course, it was his recklessness that brought about this woman's death.
2: So Mm. by that logic, they could be held accountable for virtually everyone who gets out of prison. I mean, it's one thing to say that this guy you know had a medical condition but i mean can't you stretch that argument by saying everybody who's committed a crime when they get out we should know that recidivism is a, is it a worry
1: yes we you can we we could and should. <laughs> in the real world, you actually have a safe discharge plan for folks like this. Um, and cases that I worked on, at least you did anyway. They had to report in to whatever halfway house they were going to. They had to set up their, uh, you know, treatment through the community mental health system. Um, and and here, this was crazy. They just dumped him in the middle of the road at like midnight. Like, see you later. Good luck. So, it wasn't good. No, it was bad. Very bad.
2: So the we the bad guy in this episode. Um, Well, it turns out to be an HMO executive. The perpetrator is this uh, mentally ill man, Ryan Gallant.
3: So sad. that, That whole thing with him on the stand. Did you ever ask to be examined by a psychiatrist?
2: I told
0: him I was having trouble with voices. I told him it was keeping me up nights. My bad uncle, my good uncle, saying about bringing the car down from Yonkers. I said, I ain't bringing no car down from Yonkers. That's right.
3: He was like a zombie. It was the saddest, like, you know, you know, you've seen him attack Abby Carmichael. You know that he, like, out of nowhere, hit this lady over the head with a brick or whatever, and you know that he has serious problems. But it was just so incredibly sad. And the other thing I kept thinking was... He was clearly heavily medicated on the stand he clearly has all of this uh, all of these issues wouldn't he also be impeached as a witness by that awesome corporate lawyer like how did he even get to testify in this trial
1: yeah I was I was kind of taken aback by the fact that nobody seemed at all concerned about the fact that he was pretty much comatose, um, but somehow standing upright because he was so heavily medicated I'm like nobody even seemed to observe say anything about it oh he's fine now look at him they no he's not yeah. he's like about to pass out from medication um yeah. and and I you know one of the things that they often ask you you know, when you're going in to testify, they'll be like, um, have you used drugs in the last 24 hours? <laughs> uh, clearly he had, but that did not enter the <laughs> equation here. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of like a common standard practice that judges employ when there's somebody taking the stand that comes from, you know, are you sober? No, You know, like a huge missing piece to this episode is an episode
3: about psychiatric care. And we saw none of our favorite psychiatrists from Law & Order in this episode. Like, where was Olivette this whole time? Where was she? Where, where was, was she? Skoda? Where was Skoda, exactly?
2: I think they were... They
1: were working for the PPO. They're working for the PPO.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they do get the uh, the conviction that they're hoping for uh, at the end. You know what they did is important because they're going to be on TV.
3: <laughs> Dateline wants to interview me about the verdict. Jane Polly,
1: or Stone Phillips? Stone Phillips. <laughs>
3: Diane Wiest is going to be on TV. She's going to get to go give her press conference on the older, classier iteration of uh, Dateline before it was a true crime show when it had Jane Pauly and Stone Phillips. And apparently being interviewed by Stone Phillips was better than being interviewed by Jane Pauly in a super sexist turn of events.
2: Laura, weigh in on that. Jane Pauly or Stone Phillips?
1: Well, I mean, you know, Stone Phillips is, is pretty handsome and all. But, um, you know, um, and I can see why she wanted to be interviewed by him. But, uh, you know, we got to go for Jane Pauly.
2: There was no Keith <laughs> Morrison in We, we got to have some time. girl
1: power. No <laughs> Keith Morrison. Oh, my God. I know.
2: Leaning on things.
3: Remember how Jane Polly had that cowlick bang situation, like always? I always just wanted to reach into the TV and just, like, smooth it down. Fix it. Lick my finger and smooth it down. Sorry, Jane. But it was a problem. It was a real problem for Yeah, it really like
2: hampered her career <laughs> as a broadcaster.
3: Can we talk about how the um, guy on trial, the medical guy, he was so evil-looking. He looked like yeah. an extra evil version of Kyle McLaughlin. Like, so evil. He had the evil eyes. He was kind of greasy. yes.
2: So good casting or
3: Yeah. Yes, I, yeah, he made me angry. Totally. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I also loved the guy who played the beleaguered HMO doctor who had to work in the prison. He was so broken.
0: Andrews fired a doctor for making too many referrals. Same day he calls me in. He asked me if I heard about the firing and if I was familiar with SMJ's policy limiting referrals. He told me he hoped I didn't make the same mistake.
2: Yeah, and I think that while this is set up in a prison setting, gotta remember the time. 2000, you know, so we've just been through the 90s where you had this HMO, PPO yep. uh, revolution right. in the way insurance companies are giving you your care. It seems like even though this is taking place in prison where they would have some authority, the, these characters, uh, they're really, it's really a substitute for. Everybody's personal health insurance, and that the, everybody in the audience kind of knows that they're afraid that their their doctor isn't going to be able to do what they want them to do because some insurance executive is going to tell them no.
3: Right. I mean, yeah. this is like it's, what's really was funny to me about this is that the argument around the health care and the sort of the rise of the managed care HMO thing back then. You heard the same arguments then about the privatization of it and that conglo- corporate conglomeration as you hear now about potentially more like government intervention in healthcare. Back then it was like, you are not going to be able to make your own decisions. It's going to be people deciding if you live or die. And I'm like, hello, death panel debate. It's like basically the same debate. Basically, just because healthcare itself is just so expensive and completely sucks in this
1: country, yeah, but and it's also the same in the the jail system, which is kind of sad because this was what you know eighteen years ago, um, yep. and and when I was still doing defense work and going into jails and working with. The public defender system, there was one of our jails um, in the state that was having people come in that needed psych meds and they were not giving them psych meds or medicines that they needed. And they were having some pretty serious situations. And it was, I'm like, okay, so, you know, how many years later is that? And that is actually still happening in the real world. Yep. Now it's interesting,
2: instead of wishing this guy would get his comeuppance by being raped in prison. Which is, is kinda, which is what they usually do. is what they kind of usually hint at. to yes. Yeah.
1: How much time will Andrew
3: serve with good behavior? Under a year? He'll serve it at Rikers. Let's hope he has a good immune system.
2: They hope instead he gets sick and has to get medical care in the jail that he was in charge of.
1: Oh, schadenfreude, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope he has a good immune system, wasn't that the... Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: But, I mean, we all know he's going to get raped and have to go to the hospital Probably. there, yeah. right? Yeah,
3: yeah Pretty in the much. order universe, for sure. Yeah.
2: For sure. Oof. This is the last sort of dangling plot point for me. They never found the Swatch. <laughs> well, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who
1: did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who
0: did it. Ripped, Ripped from it. the This episode is inspired by the shocking death of Kendra Webdale, who was pushed in front of a subway train in 1999. The 32-year-old Webdale moved to New York City with dreams of becoming a writer, but made ends meet working in an office. One day in January 1999, she entered the 23rd Street station on her way to work when she crossed paths with Andrew Goldstein. The 29-year-old had a history of violent schizophrenia and had been hospitalized 13 times. Goldstein had left treatment four weeks previous and hadn't been taking his medication. While on the subway platform, he approached Webdale and told her he didn't know why he was doing this, and then he shoved her in the path of the oncoming N-train. The story horrified New Yorkers and inspired a series of mental health reforms. These include the creation of Kendra's Law. It allows courts to order seriously mentally ill people into outpatient treatment. Today, 46 states have some form of assisted outpatient treatment. This past September, Andrew Goldstein was released after 19 years in prison.
1: Wow.
2: Well, the uh the story in the subway, pretty scary stuff. Uh should millions of commuters be overly concerned?
3: I think that the whole situation I mean it's funny when you go to the airport, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to, if you're like some in some big airport, you have to take one of those shuttles from one terminal to the other and the train comes. There's, like, a wall between you and the train that, like, opens up when the train arrives. Yeah. So it's, like, not possible to jump on the tracks. You can't even have access to the tracks. And if you look at the way the New York City subway system is built, it's actually surprising that this isn't a way where people murder people all the time. It would It's so easy. There are so many people. Yeah and it's just it's it's the I, president
2: of the United States did it in House of Cards I gotta
3: say the reform I would be looking for would be can we put up some sort of little fence between this platform and this stupid track
1: I know I'm more concerned about like I have a fear of getting shut in those automatic doors that open and close <laughs> on those airport subways I'm always like your
2: arm will be hanging out yeah yeah.
1: like when I was five I remember this is like one of these traumatic childhood memories I got like stuck in the middle of one of those automatic doors that opens and shuts and I was like ah! um, so now anytime I get on and off one of those, I'm like, oh, this is going to be the day. Oh Mm -hmm. my God.
3: It's like the crock in the escalator nightmare scenario, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So the push for Kendra's law in New York, which benefits patients like Goldstein was championed by Webdale's family.
3: Hmm. Good for them.
2: Yeah. Surprised by that?
3: Yeah. Actually, it's nice. It's nice to hear that for once, I mean, the story I think we're so used to hearing is that families of victims are used to uh, as tools by the you know DAs and elected officials, to enact tougher laws, to take away the rights of potential defendants, to not look out for actual the actual health and wealth and well-being of citizens. I think it's great that this family stepped up and did that. Good for them.
1: Absolutely. And, it's, and I think, you know, when I was saying, talking about, you know, cases I've worked on where people are discharged, I think that's post this law going into effect. Because hmm. um, it's something they definitely, I mean, people don't always follow it. Um, you know, you can't force people to comply, but it, it is something that is used, which is, you know, helpful.
2: I assisted outpatient treatment programs have the support of nearly all the major medical associations. They all agree that it provides for better outcomes for the patients. And a 2009 study shows that it's reduced psychiatric hospitalizations and arrests by a significant amount. Um, the New York Civil Liberties Union is the most vocal opponent to the practice. They say it infringes on the patient's civil rights. Do they have a point?
3: Yeah. They also have a point. That's the thing. That's what's so tricky about this, right? You have the sort of the safety of the public and the rights of individual people. And that is where these lines are the hardest to draw. If you look at all sorts of criminal justice reform, a lot of it is well-intentioned uh, efforts to keep people safer or to or like improve the perception of safety. You look at laws like Marcy's Law sort of passing around the country and so forth. But at the same time, these laws do take away the rights of defendants to live as independent people, to be presumed innocent when they are in front of uh, in, in front of courts and at hearings and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I, they, I, they have a, they have a point, too. I mean, it's not a great solution. I think the real solution here is just to have better health care in the country, yeah. which is a much bigger problem.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is, you know, a lot of times this is built into like a condition of parole or probation that the person needs to be drug and alcohol free or go. I mean, sometimes they build that right into the sentencing guidelines. Um, so that's that's also another way they get that out there.
2: So just a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Goldstein was released. Mm. The New York Times said it was unclear whether he could be transitioned into a Kendra's law program because part of the requirements is you have to have not been compliant with your treatment. Huh. Which I mean, I think that that's an, a very ironic footnote.
3: It is. So there's no monitoring for people who have just, you know, agree, if they're in prison and they sort of agree to take their drugs and do their treatment, then they don't get monitored when they get released?
2: Well, I mean, isn't that the point? I mean, we want them to do that. Yes. The, this is to help people who have a hard time right. doing that. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess I. it hasn't been reported that he has had, I don't know, what you call a relapse or that he... I so should
3: just check on that guy and make sure he's okay. I, I
2: think that's one... <laughs> <laughs> one very important symbol of the program that, yeah, you don't want him him messing up. Right. Well, that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Laura Bricker. Laura, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, at Laura
3: Bricker on Twitter.
2: And Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you?
3: At Reb Lavoy on Twitter and Instagram.
2: And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy freighter Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. You can get your first month free at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, studio. and is a production of Partners in Crime Media.
1: Partners in Crime, crime Media.